Okay, so, uh, Miles, FlameCon's in, what, five days? And I'm picking up shirts on Tuesday, and I've got the pins mostly finished, and you've got the stickers. You're bringing the stickers, right? What? Uh, no, Jay, dude, you have the stickers. I definitely do not have the stickers. If I had the stickers, they would be in the box, and the box is sitting empty on the windowsill, and... Oh. Uh-oh. What happened? Well, you know, it's been really hot here all summer, and I had the window open, and the screen was out, and it was windy, and I think the stickers blew away. Oh, man, and like right before FlameCon? That is some reverse longshot level luck, isn't it? It's more like counterbalance longshot, because remember, every time he gets lucky, someone else gets the other end of the stick? I guess that's us today. Wait a minute, I thought that his luck was counterbalanced by his intentions. Those kind of power it, but there's also a zero-sum luck balance. You remember, that's why the in-betweener came after him and Longshot saves the Marvel Universe. Oh yeah, I, I remember that. Longshot's luck was upsetting the cosmic balance. What I don't get is why it took so long for the in-betweener to notice. I mean, shouldn't he have shown up in Australia? Or, or sooner, even? Oh, that was big. Oh, man, I know they covered it in the series, but I am, I'm so freaked out about the stickers, I'm just drawing a blank at this point. To be fair, that series has a lot going on. If only there were someone here who was intimately familiar with it. Ah, just a sec, there's someone at the door. Matt, you're probably gonna end up needing to cut this. Sorry, um, Miles, I'll be right back. Cool. Hello? Why, it's Marvel editor Jordan D. White. Ask him if he knows about Longshot. Dude, I love Longshot. I edited Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe. Then you would know. So why didn't the in-betweener come after Longshot sooner? Well, usually Longshot's luck balances out. Ha! Told ya. So what changed? Longshot got his hands on a Cosmic Cube. The little glow boxes that warp reality. Yeah, those guys. And it dialed his powers way up, which caught the attention of the in-betweener. But by the time he arrived, the cube had hidden itself, so the in-betweener figured it had just been Longshot all along. Wait. Go back a sec. The cube hid itself? Was it sentient? Oh, yeah, somewhat. How does a sentient cosmic cube hide from the incarnation of balance? It turns into a teddy bear named Mr. Dapples. Huh. Okay, well, uh, thanks for clearing that up, Jordan. We're lucky you happened to drop by when you did. What brought you here, anyway? I mean, not that you're not welcome any time, but... Well, on the way home from my office, I suddenly really wanted one of those cannolis from that coffee shop on Queens Boulevard. Oh, the one straight up around the corner? Yeah. So I got my cannoli, and I was on my way back to my car when suddenly the wind picked up. Yeah, it has been so bad lately. And a whole swarm of J.M. Miles Explain the X-Men stickers blew out a nearby window and hit me right in the face. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here... To explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 209 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode we are very excited about, but first... First, uh, we are, as we mentioned in the opening, in the last lead-up to FlameCon. It is coming up this weekend. It is in New York. We will be tabling. We will be at table P119. We will be doing a live show on Saturday. It will be delightful. You should come. Um, our guests are Magdalene Visaggio and Cena Grace. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be queer as hell. And we're really, really excited for it. You know what else we're excited for? Our interview guest today, Jordan D. White. Right. So Jordan is the group editor or line editor or general dude in charge of the X-Men at Marvel Comics. And Jordan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited about the conversation we are going to have right now. So, first of all, since I know this varies from publisher to publisher, what does the X-Men group editor do? What is what is your job? Do you, are you just sort of in Cerebro plugged in to, to <laughs> all the books? Do you, do you have to wrangle everyone else and then keep track of the universe? I mean, uh, yeah, a little bit all of that. I mean, so I edit a number of the X-related books myself, and then the ones that I don't edit are edited by editors and assistant editors who work for me. So I'm involved in the plans that they make on those books, and then I make sure that I read them before they go out and give any any notes that I have on them. But uh, 
yeah so so it, it's different from from for different books um for example darren shan is is editing uh, x-men blue and gold right now he edits astonishing right now um chris robinson edits weapon x uh you know but i'm editing uh, the hunt for wolverine stuff and the return of wolverine i'm editing multiple man and as new books come and go uh well hopefully less going but as new books come into existence i'll edit some of those and others will go to the other folks and yeah i'll be overseeing everything do you get like the equivalent of department chair privilege where because you're stuck with the administration and in charge you get to pick the books that you edit uh kind of <laughs> i mean uh so you're catching me at an interesting time you're catching me at the transition basically uh, uh from when all the books of the line were books that were started before I got into my position. And when we're just starting to announce books that came into existence after I got here. So I think the first book we announced that didn't exist when I took the, the gig was, uh, was Shatterstar, oddly enough, very randomly. <laughs> That's, um, that, made, has, that has made, we, we have like this really high concentration of really intense Shatterstar fans we're all very, very excited about that book. I'm, I'm excited about the book. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, everything else uh, was started by uh, Mark Paniccia or or uh, Christina Harrington or by Darren uh, before I was his boss and uh, has just been things I've been, again, of course, I get involved in them and I see them through and I give notes on them and I shape them differently than they might have been shaped by Mark or Christina. But they were their their conception. Yeah, so Shatterstar is the first book that uh, didn't exist in any capacity, uh, or the first that we announced. That, and then uh, we announced X-Men Black, which is also one that we came up with since I got here. And, uh, you know, the Uncanny X-Men thing that we teased and all that. You're, you oversee the line, but how much how much actual direct power do you have here? I mean... We, we sort of think of, of, of Marvel as this, this big, intricate, and, and to some extent, unknowable machine whereby series just sort of appear organically. Are you the guy who sits down and says, okay, we need another, we, we need, you know, X-Men puce. We need, um, and, and we need it to feature <laughs> iBoy. Well, uh, I'm one of the people. It's not, there's nothing monolithic uh, happens. No, there's no one person who decides everything, but I definitely have a lot of input into that. Like, I, I know, obviously, it's not that simple, and any publisher is going to have intricate approvals processes and and stuff that that comes down sure. the line from above but um i oh actually here's an example i should i should have gone straight to i know that you were you edited long shot saves the marvel universe before you were <laughs> x-line editor and that a lot of how that series came into being was that you're a huge long shot fan and, and you really really advocated for it and, and and pitched it yeah um how did that work how does how does that work that's a good example so long shot Back when I edited that, I was uh, I was working in the X office under Nick Lowe. We needed more books, and people we were saying, "What are some suggestions for things that we can we can do?" Now you asked, uh, "Do they usually come from writers pitching us stuff or from us coming up with things?" Mm -hmm. Both happen. I mean, it's all always a collaboration, but um, there are times when we can't just we can't just trawl for for pitches we can't just be like hey just pitch us a bunch of stuff like that we would get too much stuff first of all and also there mm -hmm. are other considerations and so we were like kind of going well what can we do and i thought long shot and i think that series literally i was just like long shot could be super cool and i think the idea of long shot putting himself in front of a crashing helicarrier because he knew his luck would stop it from crashing was an idea i was just like we have to do that we have to have a book oh also i had done deadpool kills the marvel universe and i was like this is like the flip side of that kind of yeah and it's and and you of course you then got chris H chris hastings who is the all-time master of the complicated causality Brit <laughs> yes joke. yes he Which... did a great job on that yeah i went to him with the yeah. roughest idea long shot using his luck powers in crazy ways go and he came up with all the stuff with the in-betweener and the reasoning behind it and the and the cosmic cube uh he he did such a great job on that similarly similarly because if you're talking about long shot you should probably talk about shatterstar mm -hmm. they're pretty much the same person um 
<laughs> Only in one direction. I mean, wait a minute. <laughs> We've been through that issue of X Factor. <laughs> and also, as a noted Longshot fan and significantly smaller but still a fan, Shatterstar fan, I object. Well, I edited that book too, so too bad. <laughs> well, it raises the question of whether genetics count as personhood and destiny, because you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't say that, for example, Strife and Cable are the same person, right. or Madeline Pryor right. and Jean. And, and really, person. I was just teasing. Yes, Longshot and Shatterstar are definitely not the same person, because definitely, some, and also some sort of stuff happened between getting Shatterstar's DNA and it becoming Shat, uh, Longshot. It, anyway, something happened. Point is, uh, with Shatterstar, that was another one where we said, uh, "What can we do a book about?" Now, I will. You will be uh, amused, I think, to learn that the reason we said, well, why don't we, why don't we do Shatterstar? Someone suggested, and I don't remember who. It might have been me, but it might have been somebody else. Uh, we should do a Shatterstar mini because, hey, he might have some buzz after appearing in Deadpool. <laughs> oh. That, that turned out not to be the case. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, he, he looked really cool for those, like, six seconds that he was live. Yeah, he was briefly splendid. And I, I can't remember the name of the actor who played him, but I I really love, like, the, his level of enthusiasm for that role was was a whole other movie's worth. So. But once we had the idea, I was like, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can do a great book out of that. We can have some real fun with that. He's a really interesting character. Um, and once Tim got involved, Tim is a big fan of the character, and Tim got really excited. Tim Seeley, sorry, got really mm-hmm. excited about it and came up with a great story, and now I'm really happy we're doing it. So to tangent off of that for a bit, uh, we've been talking about sort of favorite characters, choosing characters, determining what the line's going to look like. What's your history with the X-Men and related to that, what's your sort of go-to era or creator or team or lineup or whatever? I think for me, for instance, the Australia era is what I think of when I think of X-Men first. And I feel like every X-Fan's got one of those. So for you, what's your X-Men? That's a great question. Um, So my history with the X-Men starts uh, with Excalibur. Um, Excalibur was my first X book and sorry, every X-Men book ever, my favorite X book of all time. (laughs) No, we are. Okay. So you're one of us. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, it's solid. It's so wonderful. I, I, I have a hard time remembering what the first issue of Excalibur I ever read was. It might have been the one with the janitor on the cover. Uh, Excalibur number four, the greatest cover of all time. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, when I read it, it would have been well after the fact, but I got it because somebody else like didn't want it <laughs> and, and like traded it to me or sold it to me or something. Um, and I loved it. I know that when I started collecting the book as it was coming out new, it was during the arc where uh, they they met the West Coast Avengers and went to Limbo, which was a real Oh, that was arc. the fill-in arc. Yeah. yeah, I think Lobdell was doing this. Very mm-hmm. weird arc, but it was. But the good news being, it was just in time because I'm pretty sure. Correct if I'm wrong. Just in time for Alan Davis to come back right after that. Um, and I was yeah. super yeah, was right into before. that. Now, obviously, that doesn't really count as an, a period of X Men. So, that being said, it is the reason I love Kurt and Kitty as like the best X Men. Um, as for reading actual X Men books. Back in that era, in the uh, early 90s, was a period when I would just kind of buy random books. Um, There was the books I would collect, Spider-Man, Excalibur. Those were the big ones. But then I would buy anything that was there. Like if there was something interesting looking, I'd be like, yeah, sure. So I definitely had X-Men number one. That's So that's definitely like indelibly like etched in my memory, that book. Um, I bought before that, I bought the Muir Island Saga. I was I was able to follow that back and forth across its uh, bouncing back and forth storyline. I definitely read Ex- Executioner's Song. I picked up all the, the things of that, crossing over amongst all of the books. But I was never like a 100% regular X-Men reader. I would be just, oh, look, this looks like an interesting thing. Let's try it. Until much later. And by much later, I mean like Grant Morrison much later. That's that's when I started okay. reading regularly. Um Again, there was stuff I read. That's not not to say I didn't read anything before that. I would pick up the essentials when the essentials came out. I had the trade of Dark Phoenix Saga, of course, like most people did. I had, right? They just give those out when you're young. Yeah. Well, along along with your along with your your six variants. Exactly. Number one. Exactly. There's enough of those to go around. Um, 
but but when I started picking up the actual books as they came out was was Grant Morrison era, and uh, and then I I want to say I never stopped since then. Technically, I did, <laughs> but I got back into it after I stopped. Yeah, I mean, I think coming and going from the X-Men line is sort of an X-Men fan tradition. Like, I don't know if you can fully consider yourself to be an X-Men fan unless you've quit in disgust or in boredom at least once. I have. Well, and there are so many of them that I, I, I feel like it's an easy line to drift away from and back to for other reasons, too. Like, you know, because rent is I, I think I've, I'm trying to think how much I've said about this on online because I don't, I, obviously, I don't want to say too much about this person did a terrible job on that book. But I, I mean, if people followed me closely enough, they'll know, but there was definitely an era when I stopped reading the X-Men books. Cause I was like morally outraged with what was happening in the X-Men books. And I was just like, forget it. I'm super <laughs> curious about that because that doesn't, that, that's, that's, and, and especially I assume that was before you were at Marvel. So this is, this is formative Jordan. This is, you know, well, it might not have been before I was at Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It was before I was in the X Men so office, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How long I've have been you at Marvel been there? for eleven years now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, I started out in the uh, in the Mark Panisha's office with where he was doing the Hulk books, but I went on the Hulk books at first. I got to them eventually. Um, I started working on a lot of the uh, what were at the time called Marvel Adventures books. Um, the the kid ones, oh, the and kid also ones. Uh, at the time they yes. were doing uh, what used to be the Dable Brothers books, but then became, I think, Marvel's best-selling authors. So I worked on Anita Blake for a little while there. I worked on Hedge Knight oh, too. Wow. I worked on um, stuff like that. Uh, but I did get to work on Hercules, which was super fun. I worked on. Uh, I didn't work on X Men First Class, but I worked on Uncanny X Men First Class and Wolverine First Class. Uncanny X-Men First Class tends to disappear when people are talking about the first class books. And that's such a shame because it's such a delight. And it's it's got the leprechaun fight in it. <laughs> yes, it does. I worked on that. Which I really appreciate that. Like, that's one of the things that the folks making it went. Yes, this is what we're distilling the line down to. Leprechauns. <laughs> yep, I worked on that story. I did. It was really, really, really crazy. Uh, and, I, and I really liked Wolverine First Class, too, where... Uh, it was all stories for the most part focused on Wolvie and, and Kitty, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. But then uh, after a while there, I shifted over to working with Nick, like, like I said, Nick Lowe in the X-Men office. And I assisted there. I started a little bit before schism, just a tiny bit before schism. I think I started on, I don't remember the name of the arc. It was the arc where um, all the X-Men were sick with the flu. Yeah. I re I remember that arc too. And there was, there was the, yeah, it might have been quarantine. Yeah, it was they they were they were on the island and or they were outside for San Francisco and they were all sick and it turned out it was this engineered flu and there was someone who was selling inhalers that had X-Men's powers. Yep. And there's a pretty good Adam X diss in the middle of it. <laughs> yep. I started right around there, worked with the with with Kieran on I mean as a, an assistant editor, worked with Kieran on Uncanny X-Men and then worked on Schism. After the schism, I most I started off just working on Wolverine and the X-Men, but then eventually I worked on both books of that, uh, Wolverine and X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, and that was a blast. Um, but that's also when I started working on Deadpool, and over time, the Deadpool stuff became more and more of my day, and uh, eventually... I stopped being an assistant editor and just was editing my own books. I was doing Deadpool, Thunderbolts, all new X Factor, and then eventually the entire Star Wars line. And now you are back on X-Men. So you mentioned Deadpool, and I kind of want to start on that because one of one of the questions that comes up really regularly on the show is what counts as an X-Book and which characters count as X-Men to the extent that we'll follow them into their solo series or their series that don't necessarily have X in the title. Mm -hmm. And... I know Deadpool exists under the umbrella of the X office in Marvel, so he's he's part of that. Where would you put him with regards to that? Well, distinction. It's a very interesting question. Obviously, for you know IP purposes, he was went to Fox, so he yeah. was considered an X character as part. He was of that. he was introduced in an X line. Book. Exactly, he started out so. in uh, New Mutants and then X Factor, or I'm sorry, X Force. I mean, and. Uh, that being said, when I was editing the X, I'm sorry, when I was editing the Deadpool books, I didn't really consider it that much of an X book. Um, sure, we would have 
ex villains in it sometimes, but we would also have non ex villains in it, and we'd have ex heroes, but we'd also have non ex heroes. So, it, when I was editing Deadpool, it was very much its own thing. Um, it would just feature X Men when it felt like it. Uh, also, like it's so important to know that he's not a mutant. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. very important to know that. A lot of people don't know that. The question, though, is whether he's going to stay a non-mutant now that Disney and Fox have merged. Are, are we right, or is he going to a... pull a Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch and switch over? I, well, It'll I, be both. <laughs> I don't think there's any reason to make him a mutant. I mean, he his origin is that he was given the powers through experimentation. Um, and in the movie, obviously, they, they did that whole thing with, well, it activated his latent X gene. Come on. Get out of here with that. <laughs> that's 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 crazy sage nonsense. That's not real. That's not at all confusing. <laughs> no, I he's he's not a mutant. He was given the and I've seen other people say, well, also his daughter's a mutant, so therefore he has a latent X gene for that reason. No, no, no. That is not how it works. Plenty of humans have kids who are mutants. There's a first generation of mutants. Exactly, exactly. That's the whole deal with the X gene. It manifests from parents who don't have it frequently, frequently. So, uh, so he, whatever powers he has, like they, they could be said to derive from mutants because they have something to do with Wolverine, obviously, because it was the weapon X program that gave them to him. But, uh, he himself does not have the X gene is not a mutant. So I guess that begs the question, um, how much does tone and theme matter for an X-Book versus whether the characters are mutants, whether they're not, versus the relationship they have with X-Men history? Like, what would you consider to be an X-Book that would fit in the X line? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, No, there's a lot of... uh, I don't think that tone itself defines the X-Men. That being said, there is a... There's definitely a feel that is not through every X book uh, through the years, but through a lot of them, um, you know, they they're a drama book. They're not a, a joke book. Typically speaking, there are jokes in it. There is always a, a a fun and humorous aspect to the characters and to the characters enjoying their lives when they have the opportunity to do so. But there is a drama and, you know, sometimes a melodrama aspect to them that. I think is not not something that has to be in every issue, but something that has to be there a lot of the time. Um, ones that that I can point to again, I loved what Jason Aaron and Kieran Gillen were doing during that yeah. schism era. Now, that is a great example because, well, first of all, there's the uncanny side, which was super dark, but always has that fun vibe that Kieran can give things, even when they're super, super, super dark. And have like a heaviness and a drama to them. And like, you know, you've got magic doing these terrible, awful, unforgivable things to Colossus. Uh, but then, the, you know, there's always there's still opportunity for some interesting jokes. Uh, then on the other hand, you've got Jason Aaron, who I will tell you, when I came to the X-Men office, I only knew Jason Aaron as the guy who was writing Wolverine and the guy who wrote Scalped. And so I was like, this is the guy who's going to write our like more fun school book are you serious and then i read the first issue of schism and i was like oh never mind this guy is amazing this guy can handle all sorts of tones yeah i came into that knowing him most mostly through southern bastards mm-hmm. and um it's very different yeah wolverine and the x-men is a, a book that i think again is a really good example of a book that is i think fun and and funny first in many ways but then it still has that undercurrent of there are stakes to this world. These are characters who who have wants and have needs and have feelings. Um, and all of that comes through, even though, again, you read the first issue and it's like this funny story about giving a tour of the school. Uh, just by the end of the story, you realize, no, there's there's more to it than that. So I've got a question connected to that, um, which is specifically about the school, which is, so the school's existed on and off very sporadically throughout the X-Men's history. How central and how, how essential do you feel like it is that there be an Xavier school and that there be an Xavier school-based book, like the, the teenager's book in the line? Interesting. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that's something I've thought a lot about, and I'm not 100%. I haven't come down 100% on either side yet. Here's the thing. I I do think that the school is a big part of the X-Men, and I do think it's been a great part of the X-Men. 
I know every era of student from the school has had its passionate, passionate fans. I get questions all the time. When are we going to see Rockslide? When are we going to see Hellion? When are we going to see... Uh, nobody's actually asked me when are we going to see Grey Malkin, but I'm sure somebody wants to know. Every era... I'm, I'm going to ask you about Surge right now. <laughs> Surge was an underloved, glorious team leader, and I miss yeah, her. Yeah. There's so many good books about that. And then again, over to the Wolverine and the X-Men era where you had you know Brew and Idy and all of them. Um, that being said, it, it is weird because the, the, the double-edged sword of that is that we're constantly having to fight against the X-Men getting too old. Hmm. You know, back when the X-Men started, obviously, uh, the original five X-Men, the X-Men, the characters we're following, the most important characters in the book were the students at the school. And I think that really continued for many, many decades. In the all-new, all-different era, they were still ostensibly at that school. And they were acting under the cover of being part of this school some of the time. But they were never like, and we have children running around then as a result. It was like, no, if if anyone's thinking of them as part of a school, they're the they're the students still, even though they're not children, they would be the college students, basically, or things like that. And and they would all apparently, you could guess, would Professor X would give them some lecture or other. When we start the idea of the X-Men that we all know and love being the teachers. It's, it's, it's a tricky thing. It's a real tricky thing. There have been great stories about it that I love, but I also worry about the fact that then we're making the X-Men that, we, that we've been following all these years older and older the more we do it. So, Jordan, you were talking about kind of the different eras of X-Men as they pertain to the school, you know, with the teenagers being students initially, then more college student types, then teachers. And that kind of gets me thinking about eras of X-Men in general, like major status quos. So you have the House of M era back in 05, where mutants barely exist as a populace. You have the Schism era that you mentioned a couple times, where there are like two opposed teams of heroic mutants. You have the more recent Inhumans versus Mutants era, where there are now multiple superpowered minority groups kind of in their own roles. And so I've been thinking about X-Men Blue and Gold, the current era that's now coming to a close, where... To me, at least, it seems like a return to what people see as classic X-Men, you know, like the 70s team, the Claremont Byrne team-ish uh, in gold, and more of the original Silver Age X-Men or even the early X-Factor in blue. And so I'm curious what your take is on kind of where X-Men is right now, status quo-wise, but even more so as we come into the new Uncanny book, like what's the status quo that we're going for? Is this more of a return to a classic iteration or theme or striding boldly forth into whatever direction? Well, um, I, I think that's an interesting idea about the different eras and because it does play into uh, the, the Marvel legacy, which this, the, those books launched right around. At the same time, it is made tricky by the fact that like the, the original five X-Men have been around for a while now uh, through Brian Bendis' books and then uh, uh, Dennis Hopeless's book and, and, and now Cullen's. Uh, so I think they're, they're part of the the world that you have to kind of keep going as long as their story is continuing. Um, that being said, again, gold does have a lot of, uh, a lot of kind of nods to X-Men history. And so I do, I do think that part of it is definitely apt as for what we're looking into with the new uncanny book. I would say that, the new uncanny book is going to be kind of unique in that it is kicking off a big story, but uh, I think it's a big story that needs to stand on its own for a little bit uh, before we can really tell you what it is. Do you, if you know what I'm saying, uh, what mm. it's building towards, you're going to have to see where it goes before you can, you can know that. <laughs> it's the, you can define eras only in retrospect. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, there, there are definitely things that I, there are things that when I came on the X line, I looked at and I said, okay, well, here's things that I would in a vacuum. If I were to change anything I wanted to right now, here's the things I would change. And I will say not all of those things are going to be shown in Uncanny for lots of reasons. The biggest being I'm not the dictator of the X-Men. It is a very collaborative thing. I am making these books in collaboration with my other editors, with CB but also even more importantly with writers who bring their own ideas. I don't, I'm not going to go to them and go, here's what the X-Men are guys shape up. 
I, I talk to them about what we want to do and what kind of stories we want to tell. And this story is one I'm very excited about. Um, but it is kind of a complicated one, uh, as you'll, as you'll see when, when we tell you what it's about. So I want to ask you about that and about, about, you know, the stories you want to tell, because you're coming into this as an X-Men fan and you're in this, this position of, of relative power now to the line. How do you separate your feelings and your judgments about the X-Men as a reader and fan from your feelings and judgments about the X-Men as an editor? That's a great question. I, I, and it's, it is one that I think a lot of people wonder about because I do have opinions because I'm a human being. And so I will share those opinions. And you know what? I'll talk about them now. I'll talk about them on Twitter plenty. But that doesn't mean that I, again, it doesn't mean I get to be the editor of X-Men and I go, okay, from now on, this thing is the way it is. Because I, I just don't. Um, there are a number of Magneto fans out there that are very angry with me a lot because I have said that I think Magneto works best as an antagonist. Uh, and the same, the same with Emma Frost fans. There's a number of Emma Frost fans who are very upset because I say I liked her better when she's not a member of the X-Men, when she's someone the X-Men fight with. Um, and I'm, 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 de I'm deliberately not saying villain right now because they get especially incensed if I say the word villain. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> but, but antagonist, I think is a great word for them. Yeah. Well, the antagonist speaks to their relationship to the protagonists rather than their, you know, necessarily exactly, exactly. ideological they, stance. They do what they think is right. They're not evil people who go, hey, I've got an idea for some evil, despite the fact that he was in a group called Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I've got an idea for some evil. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. No, they have ideas that they think are good ideas and they put them forward. But those ideas go farther than the heroes are willing to go a lot of the time. And I think that is a great thing to fight against. So that we do not become monsters in being heroes. That being said, I don't come onto the X-Books and go, if you guys have Magneto do anything good ever again, you're off these books. It's a collaboration. We talk about what we think about the characters. We talk about what they've been doing. We talk about what the plans are for them. Um, think Magneto's been going kind of dark. Guess what? I didn't have anything to do with that plan. That book has been in the works pages of X-Men Blue. Um, I don't edit that book. Again, I oversee that book, but Darren and Colin have been working on that story for a while now. So that's how it is. A Emma Frost is part of X-Men Black, which we've said is kind of focused on X-Villains. But but ask Leah Williams if she, think, if she thinks Emma's a bad guy. I dare you. Well, and not only is it ex-villains, but it's specifically, or at least the announced ones, seem to be focused very much on, on morally yeah, yeah. gray ex-villains, ones who have on and off been <laughs> pretty closely allied with the team. Well, I mean, not Mojo. Mojo's yeah, just straight he's, up evil. He's super fun. Okay, but, not Mojo. Mojo's well, just fun. I mean, Apocalypse, <laughs> also. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, never mind. All right, sorry. The ones, the ones I got really excited about, I think is what I mean here. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and the reason is for the same reason that the people love those characters, because that is interesting. Because Magneto not being a straight up villain all the time that you don't understand his motivations, the fact that he has human qualities that you can relate to is what makes him great and makes us want to tell stories about him all the time. In my opinion, I don't think the ones where he is on the X-Men are as good. Uh, I mean, again, that's that's a that's a broad brush to paint everything with. Uh, generally, on on the whole, on an individual story basis, there are great stories told both, of course. But that's just my opinion. So wait, I don't even know why I talked about all that. What what was the question? <laughs> uh, the question is how do you how do you separate those when you're when you're looking at when you're looking at a pitch when you're looking at an issue. How do you how do you shelve Fan Jordan's thoughts and feelings about what should clearly be done with the characters and look at it as as editor Jordan? Because the biggest thing is that it's a collaborative medium, and that you know even if I come to a writer with an idea that's very specific, if the writer comes back with yeah, but I was thinking this, I hear them out. My my uh, my goal is to help the writer make the best story that they can they can do. Um, and now obviously that does that mean doesn't mean that that. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that if 
they pitch me something I think is terrible, I'm going to do it. Um, but here's a dumb example. Here's a dumb example. Um, Deadpool annual. The first annual we did with Deadpool after Jerry Duggan and Brian Posehn took over the book. Um, I had the idea, hey, uh, back when Dan Way was on the book, I used to get all these emails going, it's so dumb that Deadpool has voices in his head. It's not what Deadpool's like. I hate it so much. It happened with no explanation. It's awful. Get rid of it. When Jerry started the book, I said to Jerry, Jerry, do you want to have him have voices in his head? He said, no, I don't. And I went, all right, well, then you know what? You don't have to. It's It wasn't an intrinsic part of Deadpool before. We can get rid of it and let you do your own thing. He did. I started getting emails immediately. Where are the voices in Deadpool's head? It's super dumb that you got rid of them. They are an important part of Deadpool. That's the way Deadpool's always been while I've known him. And I thought that was funny. So I said, let's do an annual that explains the voices. Let's, let's, let's once and for all go, here's why the voices started and here's why they're gone. Um, and I went to Ben Acker and Ben Blacker and I pitched them that idea. And I said, this is what I want to do. I want to do this annual that does this. And I actually pitched them a very specific idea. I was like, here's what I'm thinking. Why don't we propose the idea that all, <laughs> all narrative captions are psychic parasites that feed on the Marvel superheroes. <laughs> I love this. So, <laughs> so when you are reading a Spider-Man book and he is narrating, you're actually reading that because there's this parasite feeding on him, but normal people can sustain one and it's okay. And it won't kill you, but Deadpool, because he has a healing factor, two of them have latched onto him. And, and that's where the two voices are coming from. That's beautiful. Uh. So I pitched that. Guess what? It didn't happen. That's not what the book's about. The book's about the fact that Madcap got uh, healed into Deadpool and was De Madcap was in his head the entire time. And it's great. They came back to me with a different idea. It was super fun. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to force them to do my idea. It was, it was an idea I threw out. It's not a big deal. Ideas, in many ways, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's good execution that matters. So, yeah, I just, I want to work with talented people to make great stories. So that actually raises another question for me, which is how sacred is continuity? Because, you know, you mentioned the voices were there, the voices weren't. There's there's the rule of cool, which is the the extensive if you can tell a good story around it it can change how plastic is that how much how much variability and how how far from from the center or the current status quo can you push a single title without without like a big narrative bridge to it that's a big and important question and it's one i think about a lot um because it's a big part of my job um I know Tom Brevoort likes to say things like uh, that continuity, it's not continuity that matters, it's consistency. And that's very true. Um, one of the things, though, that I also think about about continuity is that continuity, continuity is a side effect of there being stories. It's not the purpose of them. You know, they started making these Marvel stories back in the 60s. And then the idea that they connected came about. And continuity is the thing that developed in between the stories it's like the gutters of the of the of the comic you know they're important but you don't make comics because of gutters you go the gutters are important to separate the the panels but that's not the reason i draw the panels so i think they're an awesome continuity is an awesome tool and it's an awesome it's probably one of the coolest things about doing superhero comics is that they have this almost oppressively large continuity behind them. Um, but honestly, I don't think that you should be a slave to it. I think that the story is always, always, always the most important thing. And once you've looked at what the story is, then you try to make it fit with continuity and you make continuity fit with it if you need to. Obviously, you can't go, oh, yeah, Cyclops uh, has always actually been, you know, a elf person and 
<laughs> I mean, you can't just no, no. That's North Star, right? Exactly. Yeah, I, I can't even think of a bad example of continuity. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm doing a bad job of this. You can't just say all of a sudden, oh yeah, Peter Parker's parents were never killed, and he grew up in the circus, and people would go, wait, no, that doesn't work. Well, yes, of course, that that doesn't work. The story doesn't can't bend that far, but given the general parameters of here are the concepts of the characters, here are the kinds of things we're doing, I think you can. You can bend stuff. That being said, X-Men, X-Men is a real special, special thing. And if you ask Nick Lowe, he will tell you, I gave him so much guff and it wasn't his idea. I, I'm, I'm mentioning that I gave him guff, but it wasn't, it, it, he was not in a vacuum making this decision. When Uncanny X-Men got canceled, canceled, I feel bad for even saying that, stopped and relaunched for the first time because it was the last Marvel book to maintain its numbering. Um, it oh, was, yeah. yeah, it went, it was Kieran Gillen's run uh, ended right before schism uh, or that volume ended right before schism. And that was, I think other than again, when they were doing reprints in the, in the, in the seventies and stuff, um, it had been the same numbering the entire time. And it, it really did feel special. I mean, I don't have to tell you guys that, X-Men felt like it was an ongoing story. That's kind of the basis of your entire podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes in the current era where, where there's a tendency to say, okay, that writer's done. Now a new writer is taking over. There's going to be a new number one and we want the book to feel like a completely different book. I think X-Men especially has suffered because that immense connectivity that was maintained over the many years of Chris Claremont overseeing everything and then still stuck around after that for quite some time uh, has kind of been lost. And I would really love to get back to that, but it's very hard in the current, in the current market and in the current publishing climate, like things just are very different now. I, I, I would like to get more ongoing continuity of character and of, of, of the X-Men just so people felt like they were reading the same thing to kind of, again, give it that soap opera feel that I know that's sort of a dirty word to some readers, but I think is essential. Absolutely. Yeah. And I can see that being a really hard balance to find. I mean, you know, number one, sell better. That's cleared having a jumping on point with a new story arc that attracts new readers. But at the same time, I mean, so many readers of X-Men, especially Exactly like you said, we really enjoy that sense that it's this saga that's been going on for a long time where everything comes from a logical place where all of these character traits have been built up gradually over decades. And yeah, I, I don't envy uh, your position of having to attempt to be part of reconciling that. It's really hard. I, I, I'm so envious of Grand Design. It's such a well-done book, and it absolutely makes things feel like, oh, these things were all planned out. There's so many wonderful, subtle massages of continuity that he does in there yeah make it yeah. just make it all click together and it's like no it didn't it didn't fit together that nicely originally it did not <laughs> it's going to be fascinating watching what happens when there's a generation of readers whose sense of x continuity is based on yeah, grand design that's absolutely true because it's 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 i mean it's it's kind of in some ways the ultimate subtle retcon it's making sense of things that were never built to deliberately fit together. We talked to Ed about that on, on the show a while ago, and it's just, it's such an interesting process and such an interesting But result. you know what? That's one of the things that I love about the idea of continuity. So, so okay, here we go. When I'm talking about continuity being a byproduct rather than the intended thing, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you might see sometimes when I have talked a lot, a lot about movie series, especially... Not the not talking about the current ones like the Marvel Universe one where they're going, we're going to do an entire universe. I'm talking about older ones where, you know, they were made in the traditional movie way of you make a movie and then all of a sudden people go, no, now do another one. And they go, oh, OK, how do we Ooh, we weren't planning to. All right. I love and I've talked about this on other podcasts recently, but too bad I'm doing it again. I love Friday the 13th movies for that reason. First of all, I just like horror movies, but I love the crazy continuity that develops between those movies. If you watch those movies one at a time, each in a vacuum, okay, sure. But it's when you put them together, you go, wait, hang on. Like, this guy, 
these all these these ones all happen like over the course of like two days like what's happening and this and then this person is saying that they they ran into him there this years ago and it creates this like crazy web of stuff another great example being uh the fast and the furious movies i love them for that too simplest movie in the world about a guy going undercover in a in racing and now they got people secret agents jumping cars out of planes it it, it the fact that the continuity that develops is bananas is part of the fun. I don't, and I don't think you get that from a really well planned out thing, <laughs> which is no, exactly. That's one of our, our no, greatest yeah. joys is attempting to reconcile the unreconcilable yes. plot wise. Like, you well, know, and watching what happens when a writer sets out to do that. Um, Al Ewing is sort of the go-to guy for that these days, but yes. you were talking yes. about Alan Davis's Excalibur and watching him go, that's it. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make this make sense Absolutely. no matter what it takes. It was so good because yeah, you read Alan Davis's Excalibur and you're like, oh, it was all planned out. No, it was not all planned out. Absolutely not. But no. he made it all come together so well. So well. Yeah. Well, and the people who find the story hooks in, in the weird and in the mm -hmm. conflicts, mm -hmm. in the continuity. Um, there's one more thing I want to touch on before we go into listener questions. And that's something that... I feel like we'd be remiss not to at least touch on on this podcast, given how much it's a subject for us and how much it's it's an avenue of entry to the X-Men. And that's specifically diversity and representation. And and right now, particularly queer, um, queer representation in the X-Men. It seems like, yeah, there's more. Actually, I'm not sure if there is technically more now than there is a decade ago because characters cycle out so frequently. But there's there's the existence of queer representation in X-Men where it exists aside from Iceman so frequently feels marginal or it's a subplot or it's characters who are, are far off from the center. And at the same time, you've, you've got these books that have been this, this ongoing and powerful metaphor for, for a lot of things, but among, among other things, very, very much um, have, have always had a lot of subtextual queerness to them, you know, deliberate and otherwise that couldn't quite make it onto the page initially because they were under the comics code. And I'm wondering if that's something that you see changing in in the near future or in, in the, the foreseeable future. Well, it's of the certainly line. something that we're conscious of when we're making the books. Um, obviously, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges to that um, on a character basis. You mentioned I Iceman. He's a big exception because he is a classic character that we allowed to come out as gay or I allowed to, you know, had do that. Um, but most of the time, it isn't a thing that 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 we would say, "Hey, here's this existing character. Let's let's announce that they have uh, they're gay or or something that wasn't originally part of them or wasn't necessarily part of them." So a lot of times we end up trying to create new characters, and creating new characters is very difficult. Has its own challenges across the board. Right. They don't necessarily have the, the same recognition. It's right. harder to necessarily make them stick. But the characters I'm wondering about specifically are the characters who, in some ways, like like Iceman, at least from a, a point on, but um, who specifically basically fell through the gaps of being able to be textually queer because they were created at a time where there was a, there were flat bands on that, either through the CCA or through through policy at that time. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the obvious to go to example and, and the one who, who definitely gets the most visibility and, 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 you know, and there's been conversation about this in context of the, the recent gold annual and, and, and the wedding stuff, um, before that is, is obviously Shadowcat, um, whom Claremont has, has explicitly said he, he intended to have and, and would have had in, in relationships with, with, with female characters, huh. if that had been an option. Um, so... Yeah, there's there's there seems like this this massive gray area where it's not where where authorial intent in the original state of the character is so heavily mediated by the times that changing it is yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I mean I think that we're I think we're it's hard to judge these things because I wasn't here in all previous eras, but I think that we're in a place right now where we're more open to that kind of representation than we have been ever in the past. Does that mean we're doing as much as we can or should be doing? Not necessarily. I, I wish we could do more. There are, there are difficulties. Um, 
some of them story, some of them, you know, larger, crazy real world things. Uh, I don't know how much, I don't know how much else I can say. I, I know that we have, uh, LGBT representation in comics right now. And I know we intend to do more in the future. And I personally hope we can do as much as possible because yeah, getting as much of a diverse representative cast in the X-Men is a very valuable thing. They, they do, as you said, represent minorities. And while the metaphor is the thing that we want to let do the, the talking on that in the biggest ways, um, as in it's usually the thing that is the actual subject of, of oppression and of debate in the stories. Um, having people of different backgrounds in the story, even if that's not the controversial thing in the plot is important because just being on the screen and on the yeah. page is a big deal. So on that note, um, we are running out of time, and I want to make sure that we've got time to cover some listener questions, because we got a lot of really great ones, um, one of which is one that we got before you were announced that we're, we're sharing with you, because I feel like getting, getting a third set of eyes on it would be, would be helpful, um, and I think that's the one we'll start with, Miles. Absolutely. So, Cappy asks via email, my wife and I are expecting a baby boy in early September. Oh. Congratulations. Yes. For, for Catholic Saint reasons, we're naming him Xavier, or perhaps Xavier I do this podcast, Probably I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. Um, most people who are not the founder of the X-Men pronounce it Xavier. Well, Xavier. <laughs> because I grew up during the Xavier's dream early 90s, the association between my son and the founder of the X-Men is a happy one for me. In light of the totality of Professor X's death-faking slash mind-wiping slash gene-leering record, though, how much distance should I put between my son and his 616 namesake? Wow. That's tough, yeah. I... You know, so what I'm going to say here is everyone's favorite is problematic. Oh, yeah. Everyone's favorite is problematic. No matter who you named your kid after, especially, or who your, your kid's name overlaps with, especially if it's a character who's been around in comics for 50, 60 years, they're going to have horrible stuff there. So what I would say is that if, if you need to talk about it with your son, say, these are the positive traits that I would like you to carry with you from this character. Not, you should carry this whole character with you, but these are the things that make that that I have good associations with and that I think are, are worth taking. Um, and you know, it's it's a good lesson in 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 learning what you can even even from imperfect and sometimes kind of morally reprehensible. Yeah, sources. I mean, Professor X is a real difficult character because he does have a lot of really positive qualities, but there have been there's been a lot of baggage piled up on top of him, a lot of secret killings and like you said mind wipes he's a very hard character to look at as you know the 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 moral leader that he sometimes has been and i i i wish we could i wish we could get some of that off of him but i don't know how easy that would be um but you know what but like what your advice is perfect because it's the same advice you would give if it was a real person you're naming the person after any actual mm -hmm. historical figure has great things about them and terrible things about them because that's human beings. My son is named after uh, Darian from Sailor Moon, and we're not going to tell him. <laughs> we're not going to tell him uh, you should, you know, call girls meatball heads and uh, insult their grades. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you find a balance. Well, and what I always like about Xavier, because I, I think about this a lot myself, I'm generally a fan of Charles Xavier, but then you have situations like Deadly Genesis or like uh, the whole thing um, surrounding, you know, Cerebro being sentient and imprisoned that just seemed like The entirety such, of the 60s. Yeah, well, that, but that was the 60s. Everything was terrible in the 60s. But for me, those are A, outliers, and B, things that Xavier has struggled with and tried to fix as much as he can. The best example for me has always been his unhealthy relationship with Gabrielle Holler when he was her physician and he was using his telepathy to treat her, uh, her psychological trauma. Later on in Claremont's New Mutants run, he specifically addresses that. He talks about how that wasn't cool and he feels like he really owes Holler a lot for the, the poor way that he handled things, the poor way that he treated her. And so for me, yeah, you could turn that into almost a, a, a teaching moment for young Xavier slash, slash Xavier. You know, if you screw up, 
try to fix it. Ideally, do it on panel rather than just in your head, because that way the other person knows you're trying to fix it. It's also a great way to in- introduce your child to the concept of alternate universes and retcons. So he can he can be the, the universe where Xavier really had his ha- had his ethics together. Right. But it's right. Xavier, right? Come on. It's Xavier for the guy in the comic. Absolutely. Well, well not in this universe, apparently. <laughs> Come on. All right. What else All do right. we have, Jay? Um, well, you mentioned Sailor Moon. So we, we've had an, we had an anonymous listener ask um, on Tumblr, and I assume that this is this is something that's sort of taking up one of the nine conscious thoughts in your mind at any time. So you've got it on hand. Um, if you had to recast Sailor Moon with X Men characters, whom would you cast? Oh, this I do get asked this a lot, and I'm always like, oh no. Uh, for background, it's because I do a podcast about Sailor Moon called Sailor Business, which is super fun. Let's see. Um, the the X Men doesn't really have a Sailor Moon uh, because the X Men are all. Listen, Sailor Moon is the best. Sailor Moon is amazing, but I'm going to say things that sound a little disparaging about her, even though she's clearly the best. Um, you know, she likes to eat, sleep, and take the easy way out, and the X-Men aren't really about that most of the time. Uh, the closest I can come is probably Jubilee, but that's a toughie. Uh, maybe Psylocke for Sailor Venus. Maybe Rogue as... Uh, Sailor Jupiter. Well, wouldn't Sailor Sailor Venus need to be someone who was working as a superhero beforehand? Well, that's true. Gosh, who? Well, who's that? Dazzler, I guess. No, she wasn't a superhero. She was a... Angel. Angel, oh, the Avenging Angel. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, wow. I ruined everything. Oh, if we're gonna cast the Sailor Scouts with the original five X Men, that's even easier. <laughs> 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 I don't know who's Sailor Mars on the X Men. You know, they don't have a Sailor Mars, do they? Who's the jerkiest woman on the X-Men? See, I wouldn't call Sailor Storm. No, she's not she's not a woman. jerk. Um yeah. I mean Jean Grey. No, she's not mean. So I don't know why I would even say that. Ah, I mean Emma back in the day. See, I'm thinking again, I I am I'm not super familiar with Sailor Moon and mostly just through the manga. So I'm, I'm thinking mostly in terms of like civilian identities and day Oh jobs. yeah. You know, cause Ray in the manga is very different. Ray in the manga, you might be yeah. able to pull off storm. Uh, she's not as mean to Sailor Moon in the manga. Um, so that's possible. Obviously, obviously Uranus and Neptune in some combination are going to be Kitty Pride and Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you, you prefer Rachel over Ileana? I think if we're talking about characters who, for the longest period of time and the most deliberately were coded as in a relationship and just going on the basis of that, you kind of have to. Um, and there's also the haircut factor. Okay. That's fair. But Kitty is way more interesting than, than Sailor Neptune. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I never got as far as the, out, the Outer Sailor Scouts at all. Gotcha. So. We talked about social media earlier and, and folks asking you questions on Twitter. And this is this is actually a question from the same listener, but I think it's a great one. So I want to, on social media, where is the line between passionate fan and mentions pest? Um, <laughs> that's a fun question. I uh, It's a tricky line, uh, obviously. I mean, the, the number one thing is if you're if you're tweeting to be aggressive about something, one tweet is too many. Uh I, I, I like to go on Twitter and talk to X-Men fans. I enjoy it. But if you're coming on to, to yell in any capacity, you, you don't do it. Because that's not the kind of engagement I'm looking for. Um, if you're talking about people just like literally responding to everything that I post, there are definitely people who do that. Uh, it, it, it's not ideal. <laughs> But if you if you if I say something and you have something you want to say because you want to engage with me as two human beings having a conversation, I'm into that. Like that is what I like to do on Twitter. Um, obviously, I can't respond to every post anybody does to me, but I, I'm happy to read them at least. As someone else who's really active on social media, um, for me, I think I, yeah, the line you mentioned as far as as far as kind of intentions and engagement is really critical. And the other one is, is just level of persistence Mm -hmm. and, and demand. Like I am fine with people asking a ton of questions 
Um, I get really irrationally incensed if they send all of those questions to the the podcast Twitter account, email address, and Tumblr ask box within the same hour. There's a good chance that if you ask a question and I don't answer it, well, first of all, it could be that I'm busy. I usually will say very specifically, hey, I'm going to answer a bunch of questions now before I answer questions. But if if you ask one and I don't answer it, there's a decent chance there's a reason I can't answer it, either because it's a spoiler or because, you know, there's some reason I'm keeping a secret. Uh, so asking it 27 times, isn't going <laughs> to make a difference. <laughs> yeah. I'm also, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I will, I will never stop beating this drum. Don't tag multiple oh, people God, into no. things and try to make them fight. Um, anyone who does that has also always, has sort of already crossed the line, you know, don't, don't Ugh. send authors links to criticism. Don't tag authors into conversations with critics. Don't yeah, go. No, so-and-so doesn't like Absolutely the thing you terrible. like. Well, yeah. So that's, yeah. So engage in good faith and, and with reasonable expectations as far as boundaries. So I don't have any uh, advice or opinions here because I'm not actually on social media, but I do have uh, one mm-hmm. final question for you, Jordan. Derek L. Chase asks on Twitter, I'm a huge X fan, but the last few years of announcements have done little to convince me to read modern books. What's your biggest selling point to convince me to take up modern X-Men, especially if I'm craving something different and not the same situations and characters? I feel like that was kind of the whole episode. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the answer to that is I'm going to be doing the best stories I can possibly do. And uh, there's going to be a big shift in in the X-Men line over the next year, at least, if not starting sooner. And I think that you will know it when it's coming. I think that when we make uh, our big announcements going forward, you will hear about them and hopefully they will be cool and intriguing enough to make you want to check them out. If there are specific things you weren't into in the last couple of years, I'm sorry about that. Obviously I can't take responsibility for a lot of them, but uh, I'm sorry if I was involved in any of them. Um, That being said, as always, keep an eye out for the creators that you like. Keep an eye out for the characters that you like. And if you at least give them a chance, I think we're going to be telling really awesome stories and that you'll enjoy them. I have one more final one, and it's a quick one. Um, and it's based on teaser art that may have been revealed by the time this episode comes out. Wing beams aren't going to be a thing, are they? <laughs> no, that's <laughs> ridiculous. Okay, I just just wanted to make sure. We were concerned. It's just a glint of the sun catching the the ruby quartz at just the right angle. (laughs) Jay, you always have to bring it back to Wang Beams, don't you? No! I I had nothing to do with that art or its approval, nor was I the first one to to point that out. I am am speaking for the people here. I'm not 100% sure you're not the first one to point it out. I no, I wasn't actually because someone 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 tweeted at me about it. Okay, okay. So. Well, on that very strange note, Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a blast talking to you. It has. Yeah. Hey, one more thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Can I talk to you about Uncanny X-Men? Please. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we should say, listeners, as we record this, um, we're trying to figure out whether this is going to come out before or after the announcement. So if you're hearing this segment in the episode, it's been announced. Otherwise, you're hearing it as special bonus material. Either way, take it away, Jordan. Uncanny X-Men is going to be relaunching in November with a 10-part weekly epic story. It's going to be... Sweet Jesus. It's going to be three episodes, three episodes, three issues in uh, November, four in December, three in January. One giant story that is super cool and super crazy and features a huge number of X-Men. Who is making this book, you might ask? Well, I will answer you. It's going to be co-written by a triumvirate of writers, Matt Rosenberg, Ed Brisson, and Kelly Thompson, all three of whom have written awesome X-Men stuff in the last year. Super awesome stuff. They are doing great work on this. Issue one of the book is going to be drawn by Mahmoud Azrar. After that, it's going to be three artists cycling through the rest of the 10 issues. The three artists are R.B. Silva, Yildere Sinar, and Pere Perez. The work that all four of them are doing is absolutely epic. Uh, the first three covers are by uh, Lanil Yu. They look super awesome. And this story is going to be crazy. It's going to end in a way that I don't think very many people will be expecting. And, and we are calling this storyline 
as of right now, X-Men disassembled. <laughs> that brings in some connotations. I am. Wait, wasn't that M-Day? And Schism? No, those are all going to be very different. This is very different from those things. Oh, man, I am incredibly excited about that. I mean, it's always good to see Uncanny back, but the creative teams that you just listed, those are all creators that I freaking love. Listeners, the character death betting pools will be starting immediately. With no spoilers as to content, what's your favorite issue so far? (laughs) Um, That is a great question. Uh, Probably issue so far of the ones that are written... three probably issue three um there's a this story is gonna use uh, a few x characters who haven't been the biggest part of x-men stories recently as some of the biggest parts of them uh there are going to be a couple of characters who have been uh off to the side of the x universe let's say who are going to come back in a big way and make some serious problems for the x-men all right, we are with that. We are out of time, Jordan. Thank you again so much for coming on the show and for continuing to to herd the the uh, surly and difficult cats that are the X line um, through through the fields of continuity. Where can folks find you online if if they're looking to see your other stuff? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Crackshot, except with a zero instead of an O. And uh, that podcast I mentioned, the Sailor Moon podcast, Sailor Business, that's on Twitter at Sailor Business or at the website sailorbusiness.com other than that you can find me in the pages of marvel comics all right so we are an entirely listener supported podcast and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and identities i think we're bringing it back full circle to the cold open today and handing the mic over to sexy long shot get lucky we don't get lucky we make our own luck for if our intentions are pure fortune will follow Varian Kragen, you hope to show the world the sensual bliss you can provide with those strangely five-fingered hands and that single heart? You'll trip over the sidewalk, but we'll kick loose a rock that will alert a distracted driver into avoiding an accident, and you'll pick yourself up just in time to comfort them with that flashing smile, and later, much more. Pete Haggard, you're seeking a romance that will last forever. You'll miss your flight next week. But the airport nurse who helps treat the ankle you twist running to catch it will see the mischief and hope in your eyes. And before long, you'll be dancing the night away with them, thanks to their tender ministrations. We are the lucky ones, Varian and Pete, because the world's causality of despair is no match for our open hearts and our generous bodies. And I'll turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. Just look at you, Art blithely tripping through the world, oblivious to the implications of your actions. A sketch comedy podcast show will be fun, you said. And not once, not one solitary time did you consider the balance of the universe or the possibility that someday you would have to face the consequences of your selfishness in the form of the sketch tragedy podcast show. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. Come see us this weekend at FlameCon. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and you can find the links to the stuff that Jordan mentioned in the visual companion to this episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Strife sharpens his blades and tunes his guitar for the first verse of Executioner's Song. (laughs) 